Here's the thing about a good death. The language can seem strange at first, but more and more of us know that a good death suggests someone died according to their wishes, and hopefully without a lot of unwanted medical interventions that prolong suffering or poor quality of life most of all. Family members may feel lucky in the face of a great loss that a loved one's preferences were respected. And whether the death occurred at home or in a hospital, that caregivers were helpful and compassionate and in sync with the patient and the family throughout the process. But how do we ensure that it's more than luck? Rather than conclude, the doctors and nurses and social workers turned out to be so nice and helpful, as nice as that is, what if we could say, this hospital, this healthcare organization, this practice not only has excellent palliative or hospice care, but is also conversation ready. How do you get to be conversation ready? That's what a number of pioneering organizations are testing and trying to figure out, and that's the focus of our discussion on this edition of WIHI. And welcome, everyone, to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We do come to you biweekly and also for your later listening via IHI.orgs and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Twitterers, <laughs> Twitterers, tweeters, rise up. If you do like to tweet, we know we ask you to keep track of a lot of things during the show, but maybe immediately after, uh, tweet something uh, about your experience. Uh, you can use the hashtag IHI in your tweets. Our Twitter handle is at the IHI. Now, let me introduce our guests. And as always, a reminder, they have longer bios than all sorts of achievements and accomplishments that we put on IHI.org. They also have that information on their own organization's websites. So I'm going to start out west to east, and I'm going to start out first with Dr. Donna Smith, who is a medical director at Virginia Mason Clinics at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. She has served as medical director, chief of pediatrics, and medical director of the emergency department at Virginia Mason Hospital, and has headed up numerous quality and safety committees. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. All right, it's great to have you. Kate Lally, Dr. Kate Lally, is the Director of Palliative Care at Care New England Health System and the Medical Director of Care New England VNA Hospice in Rhode Island. At Care New England, Kate has developed a comprehensive interdisciplinary palliative care program, which is expanding across the health system and into the community. In addition, Kate has spearheaded Care New England's role as a pioneer sponsor of the IHI's Conversation Ready Project, which you'll hear more about. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. All right, great. Kelly McCutcheon-Adams has just told us that it's hailing in northern Vermont, uh, but we're glad she's with us. She has been a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement since 2004. Her primary areas of work with IHI have been in critical care and end-of-life care. She's an experienced medical social worker with deep knowledge of the emergency department, ICU, nursing homes, subacute rehabilitation, and hospice settings. Hi to you in Vermont, Kelly. Thanks, Madge. It has stopped hailing. Good. All right. Very good. good. <laughs> All right. Stay away from windows. Okay. And Laga Sokol-Hessner is the Associate Director of Inpatient Quality and the Project Director for Conversation Ready at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center right here in Boston, Massachusetts. He's a hospitalist and regularly cares for patients with serious illness or near the end of life. Welcome, Laga. Thanks for having me. All right, terrific. Okay, so we're just going to get right to it because we have a lot to uh, cover, and I want to make sure we uh, can set the scene as much as possible and then get to your questions and comments uh, in the chat in the second half of the show. And I want to say also just right at the top as more people are getting on board, we're going to uh, go over the 3 o'clock uh, time just a bit today to uh, make sure all of you or as many of you as have have the time today or up to speed on our national forum coming up in December. Conversation Ready, the Conversation Project will both be part of that agenda, and we just want to make sure you have some of that information, and maybe we can answer some questions for you. So, Kelly, I'm going to start with you. When I think about the Conversation Project and Conversation Ready, both of which you're going to explain, I think about this common theme that at the end of life, often it's the best intentions that go awry. Everyone seems to be trying to do the right thing 
thing, but often using very different playbooks and often figuring things out on the spot. So talk to us about these initiatives and how they've emerged to hopefully make end-of-life less of a guessing game and maybe less traumatic for all concerned. Thanks, Madge. Um, I think hearing you say the phrase, even best intentions, really makes me think about the ways in which we haven't built systems yet that fully support those good intentions. And you'll hear me talk about analogies we make to tracking on allergy information and the ways in which in healthcare we've built a lot of really sophisticated, reliable systems to track allergies across boundaries, um, but we've not yet built systems that support um, that same type of information tracking. So just to back up a little, um, the conversation project came into being as an idea about five years ago with co-founder Ellen Goodman, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And Ellen started to gather with some friends and some family, and they would often find themselves talking about good deaths and bad deaths and really trying to think about what could they do to shift our culture. Um, Ellen often talks about relating this to the birth culture in the United States and the way in which that changed in the late 60s and early 70s and that it's time for us to have that same full-scale cultural change around our death culture in the United States. And so the Conversation Project a couple years ago came together in partnership with IHI to launch a national media campaign to support having all people's end-of-life wishes expressed and respected. And the Conversation Project has a great website at theconversationproject.org. They've been using a lot of traditional media and social media to get the information out there. Um, a really great starter kit on the website that people can download um, to share with their loved ones. I've used the starter kit with my mom. I've used the starter kit with my dad. Um, and it's just a great place to get that conversation rolling. So as the Conversation Project formally launched over a year ago now with their website, more and more conversations were taking place within IHI along the lines of, okay, so if there is this full-scale cultural change, which we very much hope for, and we have this activated public, what will it take for the healthcare system to be ready to receive that activated public? And that's actually where the phrase conversation ready came from, was this idea of are we ready um, to respect those wishes, to record them, to um, even receive them in the first place? Are we making time our appointments to hear if someone has had the conversation. So when that idea came about, that idea of being conversation ready, we were very fortunate, and I see all these wonderful names up on the screen, we were very fortunate to um, gain the support of 10 pioneer sponsors, and their names are here who were very willing to sit with the uncertainty and help answer the question starting a year ago, what does it mean to be conversation ready? So these pioneer sponsors, um, and you three of them are with us on the phone today, and you see a special call out here at the bottom for Gunderson Lutheran, who have done such incredible pioneering work in their Respecting Choices program, and we stand on their shoulders with great gratitude. Um, so the pioneer sponsors worked over the past year to help answer that question of what does it mean to be conversation ready and what we've come to and uh, this is still in the innovation phase but we've come to five principles that we think are the hallmarks of what it means to be conversation ready still a lot of testing going on this could look quite different in a year but this is where we are as of today and these five principles are to engage with our patients and families to understand what matters most to them at the end of life. This principle really has to do with being very proactive as a clinician, um, so not passively waiting for someone to come to you, but being proactive about it. The second is to steward this information as reliably as we do allergy information, as I mentioned at the beginning. The third is to partner with our patients to develop appropriate goals of care. So if you've taken the time to proactively understand a patient's wishes and you've created the information system that supports holding on to that information, are you actually accessing it at the end of their life to 
to make sure that their wishes are being respected. And then the fourth and fifth principles really have a foundational um, element to them. So if you sort of think of the first three as um, being very directly related to patient care, the fourth is to exemplify this work in our own lives so that we understand the benefits and challenges. When we were putting these together, we used to call this walk the walk, that as clinicians, as providers, as healthcare administrators, we need to do this work in our own lives um, so that we can really speak about it in a way that is not, I guess, for lack of a better word, hypocritical um, with the people that we serve. And then lastly, to connect in a manner that's culturally and individually respectful of each patient, and that really um, provides such a strong foundation to all of these. We know that across languages, across cultures, ethnicities, religions, um, death has, can take on a lot of different meanings and forms, and that if we're not tuned into that, we're not going to have effective conversations. Okay. Well, that's uh, okay. So we'll we'll sort of leave it there, Kelly. Does that make sense? At least for starters, and Kelly will be, will be with us throughout and uh, part of the conversation, the discussion, and also um, there's what's interesting is that the we're having this WIHI at a time when we're kind of wrapping together some of the learning from this past year, uh, and the conversation ready uh, effort is uh, taking going into yet a new phase and a new iteration, and Kelly will tell us more about that later on. So thanks, Kelly. All right, I want to turn to you, uh, Kate Lally. Um, It's tempting to say that um, all clinicians interacting with patients and families should have the skills to initiate end-of-life conversations, but as we learn often enough, sometimes everyone's responsibility turns out to be no one's. So you and your organization have focused in on something called a conversation nurse, which I'm sure will pique people's interest and curiosity. So with that, sort of tell us a little bit about Care New England and uh, how your efforts in a way uh, have kind of zeroed in on this idea of a conversation nurse. Welcome again. Thank you so much. Um, so our decision to join um, the Conversation Project as a pioneer sponsor correlated with our decision to really invest and develop a palliative care program. So initially, as we were developing a palliative care program, as many palliative care programs do, we came upon the issue that we really didn't have enough resources, clinician resources, to see the patients who needed palliative care. And because of the nature of our health system, we're four hospitals now, and we have a VNA, which has a hospice, we had access to hospice nurses who were well-trained in having end-of-life conversations who were comfortable in them, and they were um, able to come into the hospital and really work with the palliative care team, which at the time was me, um, having these conversations. So how we would initially do it was I would get consulted to see a patient, and if the consult was really more about a goals of care conversation as opposed to medical management or something with you know complex medical decision-making, I would ask one of the hospice nurses to go and start to sort of feel out the conversation. Well, these conversations with the nurses really took on a life of their own and became, everyone really wanted to have one of these nurses come and talk to their patients because they really had a very patient-centered approach. They would come in, they would say, you know, tell me about yourself. Tell me about the person you are. What values do you have? What are your goals? Where do you want to receive care? And really focus very much on the patient. The patients loved it. It really helped with communication between the main medical teams and the patients. And so what would happen was the doctors would actually start calling the conversation nurse, with excluding me, excluding palliative care, would call her directly and say, can you come with me? I, I need to have a conversation with this patient, and I'd like your assistance. Or they would say, would you have this conversation and then tell me how it went so that I can use that information in making decision-making for this patient. So really, she was being called independently, and people really loved this resource. So that's how this idea of having a nurse really dedicated to having conversations about goals of care took off. It expanded the palliative care um, team's ability to see patients, um, and it really brought it from a different perspective, where I, as a physician, might go in and say, you know, I, I spoke with your oncologist, and, you know, this is what they're saying about further chemo, or I spoke with the intensivist. She would come in and say, you know, tell me about you and what's important to you. And that 
aspect that she brought to it, I think, was very much valued by the medical community and by the uh, patients themselves. We did hit some difficulties uh, initially with patient, with actually non-physician staff wondering if non-physicians should be having these conversations. But we've spent a lot of time really educating about the difference between a physician having this conversation and a nurse having this conversation, what different skill sets they bring to that, uh, what the benefits of this are, and it's been very well accepted. So currently, you know, this has gone very well, and I, I gave a slide, I don't know, Yes, just and this is I've only been collecting data for a few months as as you mentioned, Madge, this is a new program. Mm-hmm. So I only have a couple months of data. Um, but you can see many of our palliative care consultations are seen initially by our conversation nurse and often primarily by her. Um, really almost fifty percent. Now if she sees a patient and feels, wait, this patient has symptom management needs, I may then come in or the nurse practitioner may come in to assist with those. But many of our consults truly are just for conversations, and she handles those. So our plans are to um, continue this program in our acute care hospital, which is Kent Hospital, but also we feel this is something that we could easily expand into other settings. We feel this would work very well in the outpatient setting, and we're working with some of the patient-centered medical homes in our area to set up a nurse maybe a half day a week or with some frequency in their office to have conversations with patients that the doctor feels it's appropriate to figure out what their goals are and to help document those. We uh, are planning on developing an advanced management illness management program in the home setting where each of our patients will have access to one of these nurses to, again, talk with them about their goals, help them communicate it to their family, and make sure it's documented. And we think this could easily be extrapolated into a nursing home situation as well. So we're very excited about this, and we think it really can be expanded well. Thanks, Kate. I, I, every time we talk about any staffing issues, new roles, new functions, uh, skills, etc., on WIHI, folks have lots of questions, and I'm just going to ask one very quickly, and I'm sure more will come up during Q&A um, on the chat, but um, you mentioned it first, you used the concept of a hospice nurse, uh, and I'm wondering um, who, who gets to call themselves a conversation nurse? Is that actually the terminology you need? And how many people um, at Kent would actually um, classify themselves as that? So at the, we started with a hospice nurse because that was the resource that we had available. Um, and, it, you know, it was easy because she'd had the training in having conversations. However, I don't think that it needs to be particularly an RN, and I don't think it particularly needs to be someone with hospice experience. Since starting this, we've actually hired a second um, RN in this role as we sort of expand outside of Kent Hospital. She is an RN, and she's worked on oncology floors. She has no previous hospice experience, but she felt very comfortable having communications and being a good communicator was really what we felt the skill was that was needed in this role. But I don't think there's anything unique um, to, or I don't think it needs to be a nurse. I think a social worker could also do this role very, very well. Uh, and, and I think as we expand, we may look to social workers to fill this role. I think the key is that someone have a comfort, a comfort in the medical world um, and also be a very good communicator and be very good at eliciting patients' um, wishes and goals as they talk with them. Okay, sounds very good. All right, well, I'm not going to ask all the questions that would occur to me. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll move along, and that's for others to ask. So thank you, uh, Kate, for that snapshot. Now I'm going to uh, bounce back to Seattle here, and uh, Dr. Smith, Donna, um, you, some of your work, I, I don't want to just give everyone just one signature thing to be talking about, but this at least helps focus on uh, some of the innovations. If an advanced directive has been filled out, but only some people in the healthcare organization know about it, and it's not in or associated with the patient's medical record, it's valuable information that perhaps is on the loose or maybe even detrimental. So Virginia Mason Medical Center really went uh, uh, took to task this issue of where are the advanced directives and are they hardwired into the system so that they might actually be uh, of use uh, and built in some kind of continuity. So tell us what's been going on at Virginia Mason. 
Sure. And um, I'll address that, the advanced directive note folder, towards the end here. Okay. Um, I think my role at VM is a member of the senior leadership team. And so largely I had the role of communicating why this is so important, why this work is so important for a population of people or a medical center. And so the approach we took was really aligning it with the strategic plan, which Mm -hmm. is very alive and well at VM. And as in many organizations, it's all about the patient, and the patient is at the top. Our mission is to improve improve the health and well-being of the people we serve. And so when you think of those things, we can only deliver the highest quality of care and improve health and well-being if we know what that means to the person that is in front of us, the person in our care. And this work is so tied into that. It's relevant in all care, but it's especially relevant at end of life to really understand what care this person's values and what this person in front of you deems as quality care. And to get that documented before you're in the middle of the care, in the middle of a crisis is so important. People have really resonated with the idea that we plan in advance for wills and for finances, and it's just only natural to gain in comfort with planning in advance about health care decisions at end of life. And there's a good chance with health care decisions at end of life that we won't be speaking for ourselves. So it's important to not only think about it, but speak up and identify people who can be your voice should you not be able to speak for yourself. So for us, a lot of the leadership was around aligning it with the mission, vision, and values of the organization. This year, it was one of um, a component of our 2013 organizational quality goals, so it had some additional visibility there, and the board requested a presentation on this work, which was also, I think, really beneficial. The fact that it's there's a high interest, Kelly mentioned this at the beginning, Madge, about there's really a social movement going on with Conversation Project, IHI, and other initiatives around around the country, which is which is really really exciting, and it's been such a great benefit to be part of this um, Pioneer Sponsor Team. So the work that we did was really with, with a cross continuum team and um, using using the tools. The slide you see before you now is the quality equation slide, and it's the framework we use to define quality and. I look at this work as very relevant to the pay, the appropriateness, because you can have the best outcomes of care and the best service experience with very little waste. But if somebody didn't want the care, if it wasn't evidence-based and it wasn't desired care, then it really wasn't appropriate care. So this care really aligns internally here at VM and I think as well as the rest of the country with what we call appropriate care. So now I want to share with you this value stream is kind of how we showed the work that we did this year. And if you look at the far left, it's all about the perspective of the patient, identifying goals, values, and preferences, and durable power of attorney, having a conversation with the people I love, talking with my healthcare team, recording in the medical record, which is what Madge referred to, and then respecting the care. Um, at the beginning of the project, did a survey of all of a, of a number of patients who died within the hospital, and if they had their wishes documented, they were respected, but not everybody had their wishes documented. So it takes us back to the left side. So we've set up a class this year to help um, patients and team members get more comfortable and normalize the conversation. We've targeted um, specific areas and standardized processes and standardized work, and you can see the cardiology clinic, hemonc, primary care, and specific units in the hospital, and provided materials with patients at key touch points. Having the conversation with the people you love and your durable power of attorney, then talk with the care team to set that up. We've developed curriculum to support team members in getting more comfortable with those conversations and having those conversations. And then this is the record in the medical record. The one place has been really key. Um, and you can show the next slide, Madge. It, it shows that the one place is is called the advanced directive note type. And it turns out the name of that folder is key because it starts with A. 
and all of these, as you can see below, one folder is called under clinical notes, advanced directive note, um, cardiology, electrophysiology, care path, pathways, consultation. This one's at the top. So the fact that it starts with A was key. And anything to do with advanced care planning and wishes at end of life, whether it's a pulse, a DPOA, um, conversations with palliative care, social or primary care, all go into this folder. We've got a, a standardized process now that when people bring in documents, we can scan them in real time so they're in the record within 30 minutes. And this stays um, alive and well and can be seen from across the care continuum. So that's been really, really key um, and I think has been, everybody has, it's made the, the wishes much more visible. So where we're hoping to go in the future, I think, is increasing con continuing to increase the comfort and the competence with these conversations, both with our communities and the people within Virginia Mason, and then increase the reliability and the consistency across the continuum. So as Kelly said, start with me. More and more of us are starting to have these conversations ourselves and with our patient, with our, our parents and with our families and the people we love, and I think that's really, really key. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. I know, uh, as everyone knows who regularly tunes into WIHI, people have to give some pretty fast presentations about some fairly complex things in very succinct fashion, and everybody does a great job. So you're all very, very good sports. I, I'm going to just ask one quick question before we uh, go over to Beth Israel Deaconess, but I notice on this example, you say it says advanced directive, and then right beneath it, it says uh, no known advanced directive. So that I'm not sure if that's actually what's meant as the notation there, as in it doesn't exist, but I guess the quick question might be what happens when there isn't one. So that's such a good question. And so this example of this M page, I don't think these are the same patients. You can see the different dates, right? So yeah. It's just to show the advanced directive note. You can also access it via this kind of table of contents page in the electronic medical uh -huh. director med medical um, record. Uh, so if there is not one, every patient, there's standard process now that every patient on admission to the hospital not only gets asked if they have a DPOA, an advanced directive, but can we please have it. Um, and if they do not have a DPOA, we ask them to, we offer them to f fill out the durable power of attorney for, form right there. In the state of Washington, it doesn't need to be notarized. So we've had some considerable success with people just saying, oh, I know who it is, I just haven't filled out the form. And then we scan it right into the record with their signature. Mm -hmm. If they're able to do that, then if they're able and they're willing. And, and then um, ask them to bring in their advanced directives if they have it so we can scan it into the record. But at least you have a person who knows them that they've had a conversation with. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Let's just leave it there for now. And uh, again, we'll let uh, people kind of think of the things that occur to them as they're listening to these mini presentations. Thanks, Donna. Um, I want to now uh, bring back uh, Laga Sokol Hessner um, at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And um, many of you may be aware that uh, BIDMC has quite a bit of information on its website for all to see about quality metrics and how the organization is doing. And I think it's uh, Lago's hope that eventually, uh, this is what he told us in prepping for this call, that um, being conversation ready will uh, basically integrate right into all those quality metrics and um, look be looked at actually as a deficiency and harm uh, if the organization is not doing well in that respect. So with that, uh, perhaps <laughs> as a kickoff remark, uh, Laga, tell us what's going on at BIDMC and welcome again. Yeah, thanks. I think uh, um, it's a pretty high standard to hold it to, but as you just saw at Virginia Mason, I think it can be done for it to be respected just the way the allergies are right up at the top of the record. Um, I do think we have a long way to go, um, and I, the way we've framed it here is that we think that that's a cultural change. It's a place um, making, uh, having an institution where everyone believes the same thing and makes it happen. And so we've asked ourselves pretty early on, we said, how do we do that? How do we get our culture to change here? Um, and we decided that we think it actually happens at the local level. It's when a, one provider decides to do something different with the patient that's in front of them. And that the more we can support individual providers and clinical areas trying to do this better, the more successful we'll be in the long run. 
And so the following question was then, well, how do we support and accelerate local change? And to do that, we used a, uh, we're using a change uh, management framework uh, put together by a gentleman named, named Cotter. Uh, you can see it on the slide here. There's eight steps of change. And I'll kind of walk through and show you, uh, tell you a little bit about what we're doing in each of those areas. So the first step uh, is creating a sense of urgency or a reason for action. No one changes unless they realize they need to change. And we're doing that through two major things. One is stories and the other is data. And what I mean by stories is that we all know about cases where patients have had a serious illness or have been near the end of life and weren't cared for the way that they would have wanted. Uh, and sometimes we hear about cases where they have been cared for the way they, they were uh, they wanted. And so we're capturing those. We're actually, uh, every Thanksgiving, we have an event called Talk Turkey, where our social work department and others set up tables around the hospital and get our staff members to sign healthcare proxy forms for themselves. Um, sometimes patients stop by. And we're actually doing a StoryCorps type booth where we'll ask staff members, hey, do you have a story about why a healthcare proxy is important to you? Would you mind telling us? And we're going to capture it on video um, and put that together so we can share the video with patients and staff members around the institution. Uh, we also are looking at data. Uh, we are developing a web-based tool uh, that people will be able to use around the institution to create customized metrics. We recognize that not every area in the hospital will feel quite the same about this information, and we want them to engage wherever they can engage. And so we want each group to identify what they think is a high-risk group of patients for them. Maybe in oncology, it's patients that have metastatic cancer, uh, stage four that's not responding to second-line chemotherapy. That's a pretty high-risk group of patients, and they certainly, like everyone, needs advanced care planning, but they really, really need it, um, whereas maybe in geriatrics, it's all of their patients. Um, and so we're building those tools for people. The second piece is building a guiding coalition or a team, basically, and I think this is actually probably one of the most important pieces of this entire model. Um, on the next slide, you can actually see the uh, champion email that we've created. Um, and uh, what we've done is started meeting with people. We started meeting with people in January. By now, I think we've literally had over 130 hour-long meetings with people all around the institution and pretty much every type of part of the hospital you can think of. And we've created an email list, and we sent out our first uh, champion email the other day to start creating a community around this group so they all know who else is involved. It's pretty basic. It talks about the four R's, which we found to be a very simple way of messaging, that we reach out to our patients, record their wishes, retrieve them when we need them, and thereby do a better job of respecting. It includes a video from one of our palliative care providers, Lachlan Foro, about why he thinks this is important, and includes a list of who else is a champion. And we actually have statistics from this email, and we know that the majority of people are opening it, number one, and number two, the link they're most interested in is actually the one about the champion. So they, too, are interested in who else is doing this work. Uh, that and our leadership team that's doing this is lead, uh, run by our, um, uh, was created by our Senior Vice President for Healthcare Quality and is considered one of our annual operating plan goals. So it has high visibility and includes interdisciplinary input from around the institution. The third step uh, is the vision, which we've all talked about. Um, and uh, uh, basically, for our patients with serious illness or near the end of life, we need to prepare to make sure we care for them the way they want. We maybe only have one chance with that group of patients, um, and a lot of them may not be able to speak for themselves when they get to that point. So we need to identify who speaks for them and have some sense of what's important and have some measure of what their values and preferences are. That and the four R's, I think, have been the most useful in terms of messaging around the institution. Uh, we're also doing some very specific things, IT changes, uh, like what, was, what Donna Smith talked about at Virginia Mason. We're doing similar things around scanning on our electronic medical record. We're working on training, and we're, we're rolling out um, uh, creating policy for Massachusetts's version of the POLST form. So here we have MOLST, M-O-L-S-T, which is essentially an enhanced DNR form that's quite popular in a number of places, and Massachusetts is just now bringing it out, and so we're making that a part of what we do. The last uh, four steps, removing obstacles, uh, means removing the kinds of things that prevent people from doing this, like an IT system that doesn't do what it needs to. Uh, step six is small wins. So when we have a story of where someone did this and it went well, we're going to capture that and share it, and then eventually we'll build on the change and make it part of the culture. And hope that by doing all of these things, we really do come back to 
being the kind of place where this information is uh, held with the same respect as allergies are, and it's just a part of how we care for patients. I think we're all going to be thinking about allergies differently after today's uh, WIHI. Um, thank you, Laga, very much. And there's so much behind each of these uh, eight points. Uh, if folks aren't uh, familiar with these principles, they seem very, very helpful for this kind of work um, and perhaps others as well. Okay, I think uh, rather than have me hog any more time with any questions that occur to me, John, remind everybody, uh, folks have started to... Uh, get in some of their chat questions and we're noting them but I thank all our guests for kind of helping to set the stage with their work Um, at some point I'm going to ask Kelly to just kind of give us a flavor of what some of the other pioneer sponsors are doing but uh, John remind people about how to chat in and um, we'll uh, we'll get going on discussion thanks yeah lots of great questions so far but uh, please make sure that when you uh, ask your questions um, to the guests uh, on, on the WebEx or us here in the studio that you address it to all participants. If you go down to the text box where you type your chat questions in, right above it, it'll say send to. Click on all participants. Uh, that, that way we can all see them. Thanks. Okay, thanks a lot. Well, I'm going to, uh, please uh, don't be shy. I mean, among other things, uh, w- one of the things we are always seeking on WIHI is to find out what are your innovations in your own organization, what kinds of things are working. Uh, we imagine many of you are on the road to being conversation ready in different respects and would love to know what some of the things are that you'd like to share during this program. Everyone can download the chat at the end and then have that great uh, resource document uh, to look look back on. Uh, there was a question uh, right away, uh, Kate you, uh, Lally, Dr. Lally, you were talking about uh, moving forward, it may not be so necessary that it's a nurse who is really the main person having these kinds of conversations and somebody um, chatted fairly quickly that they were concerned that it wouldn't be a nurse, uh, a little bit worried that uh, this kind of thing might be handed off uh, in ways or to people who may not be as qualified, the person uh, Uh, noted LPNs or said something about medical assistance, but maybe you could just elaborate on uh, that that thinking. Thanks. You know, uh, so the role as we have it, I think, is different from how when we've often in the past gotten advanced directives. You know, I know it's sometimes in emergency rooms there might be a medical assistant who asks, you know, um, do you have an advanced directive? Yes, no, checks a box. Our role is it's very much about communication. So it's, you know, the nurse, and again, we've been using a nurse, comes in and really what her skill set is, is being able to really talk with the patient about what what are your goals, who are you, you know, what is important to you, what is important at the end of life. So certainly, I think the main skill set this person would need to have is that they would need to be an excellent communicator. And I do think they would have to have a certain degree of medical knowledge, but this is less about, you know, I've I've spoken with different people about the role, and I spoke with, um, you know, a person at our hospital and who, who we were talking about having these conversations, and she said, well, you know, I'd feel like I'd need to talk to the oncologist, I'd need to talk to all the other doctors, and that's not really what this role is. It's not about bringing all that medical information together and presenting it to the patient. If real complex medical decision making is needed, the palliative care team, the physician, me, or the nurse practitioner would get involved. But it's really about communicating with the patient about what's important to them. I've seen this role uh, as either an RN or a social worker. That's really how I've envisioned the role. Um, But I wouldn't say it's impossible that other people couldn't do it as long as they were excellent communicators worked well with the team and had a certain level of medical knowledge to, um, you know, be able to communicate between the patient and the medical team caring for them. Okay, thanks very much. There's an interesting, uh, numbers of people are sort of asking about uh, palliative care that's outside the hospital setting that may occur more or the transaction about that may happen more in the community or office practice setting. There's a question about whether Medicare Part B even covers that sort of work and whether uh, I think each of you has alluded to things kind of migrating from more acute care uh, into community settings, but would somebody like to sort of take on sort of the alignment, I guess, of sort of building these programs or making sure that they actually also work and resonate in the office practice? Um, Who would be the best person? Is that something for Donna, Laga? Who wants to take that on? I don't know what we need to call it. Um, 
Go ahead. Kel- yeah, this is Kelly. Go I for it. A few examples <laughs> okay. from other pioneer sponsors. Thank you. Um, of work out in the community, and I just have to put in a quick plug just to follow up on what Kate said. I'm a um, master's prepared social worker and have worked in a lot of healthcare settings, and I have to say, I think these conversations are the exact training that I received. Um, and no, I'm not there to deliver diagnostic information, um, but certainly, for example, after working in uh, Alzheimer's uh, dementia special care unit and a SNF, um, I was able to have sophisticated conversations about whether or not placing a feeding tube was um, the, what the patient would have wanted. So just don't count out other professions. It's, um, there's a lot of skill out there that can be really critical to this conversation. Just a few examples um, from more out in the community-based. Um, the folks at Mercy in Ohio um, started doing some testing around a physician proactively mailing the Conversation Project Starter Kit to a patient in advance of an appointment and saying, um, gosh, you know, I'd love to talk to you about this the next time you come in. At St. Charles in Oregon, they were working this into their heart failure university, so people who had a new diagnosis um, of heart failure, this was one of the modules in their, um, I think it was like a six-week university that they would do with a meeting each week. Um, and then um, back out in the community in sort of a different angle, Henry Ford Health System in Detroit has done some incredible community work. They're putting together a faith leader summit um, so that the faith leaders in their community have um, good, accurate information about care at the end of life and can be a better resource to their congregants. Um, and then we also had a couple other pioneer sponsors who did some testing um, in the primary care setting, Contra Costa in California, did some of that work. Okay, thanks. Um, maybe, Lago, I'll ask, thanks, Kelly. Lago, I'm going to ask you this question that's come in. Uh, maybe um, somebody wondering about how do specialties get looped into this? Oftentimes, uh, when things become critical, uh, a patient or family may very much be most linked up with somebody, a cancer specialist or uh, an oncologist or somebody at heart specialist or somebody who's been very involved in that level. Is any of this work, um, are, are some of your champions coming from the specialty areas at all? Very much so. And, uh, you know, I really think that this is something that mo- many providers, most providers should have some competency with, especially if they work with serious Ill, seriously ill patients or near the end of life, as all of pretty much all of our specialties do. Um, so we uh, do have quite a few specialties. We're working closely with oncology, geriatrics, critical care, um, and others, and that will continue to expand. Uh, and I really, you know, part of what we've done here is focus groups with patients. We actually sat down with a lot of patients and asked, hey, who do you want to have this conversation with? Because I think that's the real key here. Who's they, who, who do they want to talk with? Who do they feel comfortable sharing these very personal details with? And it varies. And I think that's one of the keys to remember is that it's not just the primary care doctor. In fact, some patients said, you know, I don't have that relationship with my primary care doctor. For me, it's my cardiologist that I've known for 10 years. So I think it really varies. And, and the key is just to ask, who does that, who does that patient want to talk with? Um, and to empower them to talk to that provider and say, hey, this is important to me. Can we create some time this visit mm-hmm. uh, is another strategy. So they are a, an essential part of it. And I think one of the keys that we're, we come back to is that we're trying to engage them where they are because they're all in different places and provide them the tools they need to get better um, with the population that they think is at highest risk. That's been our general approach. Thanks. I'm curious whether any of you have, ha- our guests have, uh, it's at some level kind of picking up on one of your themes, Lago, about what do patients and families want most. How many of you have had some work now under your belts of designing things with patients and families, sort of coming up or sort of seeking uh, ideas uh, from patient family advisors, uh, trying out some things um, with some of the innovations coming from uh, the patients and families themselves? Anybody? Well, I'm, this is Lauga again. I'll mention <laughs> here at, at Beth Israel Deaconess, there's a very strong tradition of patient involvement. We have a very robust patient family advisory council with multiple sub-councils in different parts of the hospital that is run and organized by our social work department. 
We actually have two patients that sit on our core project team and have since the beginning. And in addition to running those focus groups, have actually gone and presented to the advisory council, which is yet a larger group of patients. So they're intimately and deeply involved and will continue to be throughout the project. I think it's essential. Okay. All right. Anyone else, feel free to jump in. Uh, Donna Smith, I think I'm, I wanted to ask you one question about um, the effort to, when there isn't an advanced directive, to begin to make that a more normal practice. I know we are aware that uh, this was a, has been a big effort in places like Wisconsin, uh, et cetera. Uh, with Gunderson uh, often uh, in in uh, a big engine for that. How has that uh, been received uh, by patients and families? Surprisingly well. Um, I think it, it's, it's been surprisingly well received is to just ask them. And the conversation project tools have been helpful to help people realize um, what the questions are that are important to be thinking about and what the questions are about what matters most to them at the end of life. I think the durable power of attorney, you know, who will speak for you if you can't, is such a critical piece. And I think people have been surprisingly comfortable filling that out on the spot or bringing it from home if they already have it. It's it's not all that. Some of the advanced directive forms that, depending on um, what, you know, what tool you're using, some of them are a little cut and dry and not that helpful. And we find that the the values and the goals and the preferences elicited by questions from conversation project material are much more helpful in helping to guide guide what care is most important. Just to follow on to the question you asked about involving patients and families, we're doing some focused work with patients and families with pancreatic cancer recently, and they've been so helpful in um, helping us understand how to really get to know them and what matters most to them and which touch points along their journey have been most impactful. Can you just even give us a flavor of what you've learned? Uh, I'm, I'm always curious whether you either things are surprising or things that just didn't occur uh, to everyone, even with the best intentions. Yeah, I, I think that that they want they want to be involved with information. They want to be involved in conversation about what matters. They want people to ask, and I think Lauga really said it right. Different people want different things in terms of who to ask. Some people say anybody. Just keep that conversation alive for us mm-hmm. about what matters to us and what our goals are, and that goal is going to change as the you know course of the illness and course of treatment changes. But keep that conversation going, um, and really engage in conversations about what what patients and families value just to help people have those conversations i think that's what we're really what we're really learning I uh, thank you very much. Um, I note that there's a comment in here about concerns that um, while there has been some focus on end of life and having difficult conversations, certainly with medical students in medical training, somebody here is expressing uh, their observation that this may be a poorly developed skill. Now, this is something that the Open School at IHI, our um, virtual and chapter-led uh, uh, effort uh, to um, work with students in the health professions is definitely trying to address, and I'm pretty sure there's a course or there's a course in the making. So maybe Jane Rossner will chat in here uh, if indeed there is, uh, right, the course. I'm looking at her uh, through a pane of glass here, everyone. I just didn't want to misspeak. Um, But there is uh, an open school course that was developed very much in line or is in the making with uh, the Conversation Project. Um, And I, yes, there's Kelly also uh, referring to the fact that it is in development. So watch for that. (laughs) We'll add that resource uh, as it emerges. Um, How about this question for everybody? What things might you have tried that didn't work and that you might advise others to not go down this path or maybe some assumptions that have changed? Uh, Anyone is welcome. Kate, can I uh, try you first on that one? 
Um, you know, some of the things, and I mentioned this briefly, that we've struggled with a little bit is, um, you know, is communicating the fact that different people bring a different perspective. Um, our hospital is, tends to be a little physician-focused, uh, that physicians do much of this type of conversation, much of this type of work. So we've really um, struggled, and I think we're really starting to do this to educate our staff about uh, empowering everyone to have these conversations with themselves with their own families, um, and then also with patients, that this is not something just a physician can do. Um, Lauga mentioned that patients do have different relationships with different physicians, with different people on their care team. So really empowering every different member of the care team that if they feel comfortable with the patient, if the patient feels comfortable with them, they can play a role in having these conversations. So that's something we've, um, you know, I don't know that we initially realized how much education we'd have to do around that, but it's something that we've really uh, worked to develop a curriculum and we're, you know, working with some of the nursing leadership at our hospital to do a lot of education to our nurses to empower them to have uh, to have conversations or to help guide patients in having these conversations with their physicians if that's what they feel more comfortable with. Thanks. Lauka, anything that uh, um, in all the, you know, the variety of things people are trying coming at this from many different directions, are there some things you've kind of put down as maybe not the best way to go? Well, I guess I would say that... Um some of it is around messaging. Uh, you know, if you're going to be spreading a message around what what exactly are you asking people to do, has been a real key for us to try and sort out. When we say have a conversation, what do we mean by that? Who does it, etc. And I think one of the big themes that has come out uh, from providers that they're really worried about is time. Um, I don't, you know, I'm guessing it's pretty much the same in most major medical centers around the country. But our providers here are working constantly and working really hard, and being cognizant of that and helping them understand how what we're suggesting is going to help them, how it's going to make things easier, better, how they don't necessarily have to do new or extra work, but maybe just capture work they're already doing. Things like that, I think, have been very important and have allowed them to continue to listen to what we're asking them to do differently. And ultimately, yes, it takes time. You have to sit down. Conversations, good ones especially, often take take a while. But um, where can we begin with people, help them understand the value and importance of the work, and then build off of that? I think those have been things we've learned. Coming at them and asking them to do, you know, an hour-long goals to care conversation when they've got five patients waiting in the waiting room uh, is not going to work. So how do you how do you to make it something they can can get their hands around? Thanks. I'm going to even just interrupt my own question because a couple really good ones have just flown in here on the chat. And um, there have been a couple people who have been asking about um, making sure, or how do you make sure that the things that you're developing really uh, work and reflect uh, differences across culture, ethnicity, uh, race, um, many different uh, areas of diversity. Uh, Kelly, I don't know if I should first ask you whether whether that's something that has come up at all. You've had a lot of different calls throughout the year with the Pioneer Group uh, across the board. Has that been a theme of, of, of some of your conversations? Absolutely, which is how that fifth principle came about, about really making sure that you're engaging in a way that's culturally respectful. And I really want to call attention to a um, resource that got shared a little earlier on in the chat, which is the aging.stanford.edu um, site um, from Dr. Vijay Periacoil, who's been working with us and will be faculty for the next phase of work um, for Conversation Ready. That website... I swear it's like getting a free graduate education. Um, there are 11 modules. They each take, I think, about two hours. They're um, reading modules about the 11 main um, cultural groups or ethnic groups within the United States. They are so comprehensive. It's geared toward elder patients, um, but what a rich, rich resource. So I would say that if anyone is um, wanting to dive further into those issues, that website is just incredible. Um, And it certainly does come up because I think we know that working across um, language barriers, working with populations where there may be um, different beliefs about death, different beliefs about afterlife, different beliefs about how much you should or should not intervene, um, different senses of trust within the healthcare system. These are huge issues. So 
I think the key is to not pretend that they're not important issues and to make sure that whatever initiatives you're undertaking are bearing those issues in mind. One really quick example, um, Contra Costa, one of our pioneer sponsors, made sure that they did some upfront training with their medical interpreters. So instead of just throwing medical interpreters into really intense end-of-life related conversations, they did some upfront training to help people understand um, what those conversations might be like and the issues that might be coming up so that the interpreters were in a better position to do cultural interpretation as well as language interpretation. Thank you. I'm going to just throw in just one or two more things as we kind of amazingly get to the top of this hour. Um, as always, we could be on for hours, but we know everyone uh, doesn't always have all that time all at once. So we hope you will take advantage of the chat, uh, the rich conversation, and continue to follow up with one another. Uh, a couple of people have asked about measurement and metrics demonstrating value in this area of work. Uh, if anyone is welcome to kind of jump in on that, if that's something, again, this whole phase of work this year with these organizations in some sense has been an innovation year, uh, building on some strong palliative care and other programs, but also testing out some ideas. And I, it will be come in just a second, my segue to ask uh, Kelly to tell us what's coming next with Conversation Ready. But if any of our guests today have anything to say about metrics you may be using, uh, uh, that, that's been asked by a couple of people. Anyone? Uh, Donna or Kate? You know, I think looking, just doing the chart audits to see how many people who are admitted into the hospital or in, we haven't started in a primary care setting, but um, how many of people who are admitted have a an advanced directive note type and how many of the people have a durable power of attorney documented. And, of course, what I mentioned earlier, just when somebody dies, are we respecting their wishes? Have we really delivered on what we promised? Okay. And you get at that. This, if, this is, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just quick, quickly, Donna. And you get at, have we really delivered? Is that through a process of kind of um, a kind of review of cases, interviews, that kind yep. of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Chart, chart review, right? Okay. And interviews. Okay. Kate, I'm sorry. No, not at all. I, the Again, we've been really just sort of creating this idea and whatnot, but what we've done to measure is mainly we've been sort of trying to document the number of conversations that we've had to sort of prove the value and the desire for them. Um, and we've also, you know, looked to some uh, patient feedback about these conversations, how they feel it affected their overall hospital stay. So we've been looking really at measures like that to sort of get a sense of how this has been appreciated. And um, again, as our consults and requests for conversations have increased month over month, we've sort of seen that there was some value in it that way. Okay. Laga, thanks. Uh, Laga, anything going on with kind of measurement or metrics? Yeah, I think our two major metrics that we're going to be, um, that we're building and have been looking at, we've, uh, two things. First, we've done um, healthcare proxy. We're looking at percentage of patients that have healthcare proxy, and we've done chart review to figure that out. Um, uh, we've actually engaged the house staff here, the internal medicine residents who are doing some chart reviews and measurements and found very low rates, and so that's why we're developing these large systemic measures that can be repeated uh, through a web-based tool. The other is, does do our patients have some sort of information in their chart, a note from a doctor, a scan document, etc. And I'll just quickly note the last thing we're doing, we're actually getting the cost of uh, what it is to obtain guardianship for patients that don't have a healthcare proxy and measuring that as one argument to help the institution reframe uh, resources to help get this information into the chart. Okay, thank you. Um, Kelly, I think I'm, I'm going to, first of all, I want to uh, thank all our guests, um, uh, Laga, Kate, and Donna. Um, this has just been an amazing conversation. Kelly, I'm going to give you kind of the last word here because I want you to uh, tell us kind of what happens next, how to watch this space in terms of what IHI is doing with Conversation Ready. Obviously, everyone will be uh, hopefully staying close to these organizations and this wonderful leadership that we're seeing today. But uh, what, what's in store here uh, next for Conversation Ready? Yeah, thanks, Madge. We're actually heading into phase two. So we had these 
dear Pioneer sponsors who could handle such high levels of uncertainty hang with us over the last year. And through their great work, we've put together the five principles that we shared. We've put together a draft change package, a draft measurement strategy. And so what we are now looking for um, is 30 to 40 organizations to join us for the next year um, for the Conversation Ready Healthcare community, We're doing some pre-work over the fall, two virtual learning sessions that will bookend the nine months of January to September of next year, and an in-person learning session in early spring. Um, it'll be run like a collaborative, monthly reports, faculty calls, listserv, extranet, lots of great learning together, all teach, all learn. Definitely looking for people with an innovative heart and spirit to join us to do this work, um, and there's more information available at IHI. I think we have the, the link available for that match. All right. And there um, you and are, very bravely. In touch with me as well. Yeah, your email address and phone, and we thank you, uh, Kelly, for that. I want to again thank Drs. Kate Lally, Laga Sokol Hessner, and Dr. Donna Smith, um, and everyone who helped uh, put put this program together. I know I learned a lot. I hope you got a good, um, I don't know, a good footing in um, some very very interesting work. Conversation Project and Conversation Ready really uh, go together, and uh, we hope on WIHI and through other means to keep sort of showing you how these efforts can continue to nurture and nudge one another. So I want to thank everybody uh, for your participation. If you have a moment, check out IHI's Facebook page after today's program. Um, also, uh, perhaps uh, tweet something about what you've learned using the hashtag IHI. Um, and uh, please uh, stay tuned, and thank you for being such a great audience with today's topic. Next up on WIHI on November 7th, we're going to look at uh, a promising project called Promises. Uh, folks focused on improving safety and satisfaction in ambulatory care uh, and really, really interesting work going on and research about uh, drop balls when it comes to diagnosis and how those can be improved. Uh, the webpage about this is live now and you can check it out and enroll. Don't forget, you can download the chat, any slides, everything will be on the website tomorrow, including uh, the audio. And again, all questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. So we've got a great group who help make WA, let's see if I can say it, W-I-H-I possible. And they include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt War- Morris, boy, Stephanie Moncayo, uh, and Amanda Swayatoka, who helped us out. Ac- uh, excuse me, Aka helped with today's show. Kelly McCutcheon-Adams helped with today's show. It's a true team effort, and it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patients care most of all for the institute for healthcare improvement you've been a great audience today i'm madge kaplan keep on listening keep on networking good day